Hello everyone, my name is Haley and this is another episode of Straight Talk with the Doc, a podcast that takes a real look at addiction, mental health, and treatment. I'm joined today by our content director, Jeff, and our medical director, addiction medicine specialist, Dr. Bott. Dr. Bott, how are you doing today? I'm great, Haley. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing good as well. Jeff, we don't want to leave you out. How are you doing, Jeff? Sorry, Haley, before we start. Jeff, you doing okay? Well, I, I'm fine now. Yeah, now, now I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> I don't, we don't want to leave you out. Okay, cool. So, uh, Dr. Bott, you've worked with many patients over the years who are struggling with different addictions, and you've helped create treatment plans for these individuals. But anyone who knows someone with a drug or alcohol problem knows that it's not just the individual that is affected. The close friends and the family of an addict can have their lives turned upside down when someone they love starts abusing drugs or alcohol. So this episode is for them. Dr. Ba, I'd like to talk to you today about how family members can offer support without enabling their loved one. And, you know, when it comes to treatment, what can the family do? But first, um, I want to start by asking you, about the signs of substance abuse to look out for. Um, if someone is listening to this and they suspect their spouse, for example, or their child is abusing drugs or alcohol, you know, what kind of changes should they pay attention to? Sure. You know, I think that question is kind of unique to where somebody is uh, in, in their lifespan. You know, if we're talking about a teenager, um, let's start there. You know, when we first see somebody who um, may be starting substances, so we're not talking about an established person who's suffering with maybe a substance use disorder, but somebody who's never used before, but starting to develop, you know, risky usage. So, you know, oftentimes adolescents start to experiment and we see them declining in school. So often school performance that starts to change is a, is a big sign. Often if the uh, child or adolescent starts to isolate more, they're becoming more secretive or staying in their rooms. Many times if they become very temperamental, irritable or angry, you see a lot of mood changes and, you know, being absent or not coming back on time and, you know, just changing a pattern of being certain responsibilities towards your family. Or again, we're talking about teenagers, hopefully they're going to school. So, if you see somebody with some drastic mood changes and changes in hygiene appearance, maybe not keeping up with their um, going to take a shower or, you know, uh, staying in their room for hours at a time, you know, we, these are all signs that, you know, something's going on with these individuals. And um, that can often be present when somebody starts to use. Secondarily, it's when, you know, we're talking about somebody who might have an established substance use disorder these individuals probably have been recognized obviously by people around them and you know similarly but in just a different stage in their life if somebody starts again to you know behave erratically if they start to stop keeping the responsibilities towards their family towards their jobs if we see money or objects sometimes if they need it to use to buy drugs but that are not accounted for and again you know probably periods where their mood is changing, where they look sedated, or they look like they're um, on something that could be elevating them. So mood changes, behavioral changes, these are often 
hallmark signs that somebody has started using again. Mm-hmm. You mentioned some, you know, physical changes like reduced hygiene. Can you kind of explain, you know, why does that happen? You know, why would abusing drugs or alcohol, you know, do that to somebody? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's a good question. It, it, it might sound obvious that, you know, when we're using something that's changing the way we think, that's altering our mind. You know, when somebody goes from using to full-blown addiction, there's an evolution that's occurring here. Our brain's motivational mechanism, our reward mechanism, the things that we hold in higher priority, they start to get altered. So our hierarchy of things that are important to us change. Pursuing now the drug becomes like, you know, priority number one. And so what suffers there is the importance or the recognition of the importance of other things that we might recognize when we're not, you know, suffering from uh, addiction is, you know, keeping basic hygiene, worrying about the way we look, worrying about the way we smell, worrying about, you know, uh, things that might, you know, belong to self-care. But unfortunately, when you suffer from something that's kind of hijacked your mind and the way you think, and it's artificially inducing the way you, you know, do anything in life, you know, the way you look and the way you dress and the way you you take importance about your self-care is neglected. So, yeah, that's a, that's a big thing. But, you know, so many other things can happen, not just, you know, with hygiene. A lot of times it's more just, you know, the, the, their mood, their mood, the way they react, the way they feel defensive the way that they get angry quickly or, or, you know, sustained periods of being elevated and high and energetic. So there's this physical component and then there's this, you know, behavioral and and emotional component that, you know, need to be looked out for. And then, sorry, just to add one last thing, then there's some more uh, signs that, you know, people who might be using IV drugs, you might see things on their body. You might see, you know, injection marks and bruising. And sometimes these are not very obvious because people can cover them up. And um, anyway, those are another things that you need to look out for. Yeah. um, I'm curious, are there, you know, certain substances that are easier to hide? You know, from, I mean, this could be someone that you live with. You might sleep in the same bed with them every night, but like, are there certain ways that they can hide things? And then are there other, you know, drugs, for example, that the use is more obvious? I mean, it really depends on how savvy and how, you know, what access somebody has to what drugs and to what degree they go to hiding. I think you might be an alcoholic or somebody who has an alcohol use disorder and you know, where are you going to put your bottles? Where are you going to put your six pack? Where are you going to put it? These are not things that are easily you can hide because they're, they're larger. But if you have done it for a while, you know, you can find ways to, to put these things under your bed where maybe your spouse or loved one might not look for your parent. You can, you know, put them inside the toilet. There's so many different ways. I don't want to give people creative ideas of where they are at, but at the Mm -hmm. same time, you know, people come up with very ingenious ways, but I think pills and smaller things are easily um, hid because they're smaller. So the the smaller something is that's used is often easier to um, 
you know, people put them in places in their in their cigarette packs and anywhere again in between their mattresses. They put them in their underneath their car seats. There's so many different places people hide things. They switch labels and bottles, and you know, it, it really it takes somebody to start to recognize pattern change to you know be uh very keen on that recognition so um again that's not the easiest question to answer because it really could be anywhere that somebody finds a place to hide that they think that somebody who might be looking won't look and um i think that can be basically anywhere the person um finds convenient or knows that somebody won't look or hopefully won't look I was going to ask, so, I mean, obviously some signs and, you know, symptoms are going to be more, um, you know, I guess sh- be more obvious than others. Like if someone has like track marks <clears throat> on their arms or legs, that's probably, a, you know, that's pretty significant e- evidence of, you know, intravenous drug use. Um, you know, similarly, if you actually find an illegal substance, you know, that's, pretty you know strong evidence as well are there any other like major like signs that are like would be easier for people to pick up on that might like show stronger evidence than some others yeah i i do believe the track marks or the iv injection marks those are big ones because i mean most people if you don't have a medical condition to be sticking a needle in you i mean that is um and because people tend to repeatedly use um, often th- their veins where they're injecting tend to uh, collapse, what they say, and, and, and you know, they, they, they have to use multiple other areas in their body. So when you see these things up here, you know, on your ankles, your feet, your legs, your arm, I mean, all over the place, uh, your neck, I mean, these are things that are pretty, um, I don't want to say pathognomonic, but usually this is pretty clear that somebody's using an illicit substance and they're, they're shooting it. Versus sometimes people who are drinking, um, you might not notice right away until that person becomes um, pretty intoxicated. And because people tend to develop a certain level of tolerance, so things that are ingested through their their, their mouth, um, obviously you might not see those signs on their external body. Those things I think will be hidden um, easier. But things that need to be injected obviously become more obvious and are often more significant because they're entering your bloodstream quicker and they can have a very more deliberate effect versus something that you have to ingest through your mouth, which has to take time to pass and get absorbed. So I'm not trying to associate necessarily lethality to the route that you use, because if somebody takes fentanyl orally, which is a very potent substance, they can overdose and die very quickly. And that's not being shot. But just to answer your question, yeah, things that are more evident uh, on your physical body, obviously, on your skin, you see these changes. Yeah, that's more um, that's more um, pointing towards somebody's using these injectable drugs. But then behavior, again, I mean, we're talking about physical signs that way, but you, fit, looking at somebody's behavioral change, um, that's a big one. If you're used to seeing your son or daughter, husband, wife, or anybody behaving a certain way, and all of a sudden you see a, a pretty significant pattern or change. I mean, you need to ask why, what, what's going on? And if these people don't have a good explanation or seem out of the ordinary, 
especially if you know they've had a substance use disorder or they're adolescents, which are big risk periods, um, you know, you should be uh, concerned about uh, substance or alcohol use. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, the behavior changes, you know, somebody just suddenly being angry, you know, with, you know, their loved one. How does addiction change the brain in that way, you know, to cause somebody to be angry towards their family member who is really just trying to help? You know, that, that, that's a little bit complicated, you know, because we don't know what underlying resentment or issue that somebody might have towards a specific family member. But let, let's just look at one example, um, taking alcohol. Now, alcohol is a, it's a sedative and it, it, it basically um, suppresses, depresses the brain's function. And so if we look at one part of the brain, which is the frontal lobe of our brain, which is a very highly uh, regulatory component of the way we behave and the way we think. It controls things like impulse control, uh, planning, organizing, um, you know, and it can control the way we inhibit ourselves from acting a certain way. When we use alcohol, for example, it can actually block that regulatory mechanism that that frontal lobe of our brain has. And it actually can do the opposite. It can disinhibit us. So it can make us Instead of the control part of our brain being intact, now the alcohol has basically blocked that from functioning. So we're out of control. And these people now, the emotions and the behaviors that are normally regulated are now unregulated. And so these people tend to get um, a lot more, uh, they can become aggressive or they can become um, angry and irritable when they more likely would be able to uh, regulate their emotions. But also, um, anger, there's a defense mechanism going on, right? Because many people are so sensitive about their substance use that, you know, they, they basically will project it out on somebody else, try to blame um, the other person, trying to distract them from their own use or give them a reason that is substantive enough that says, hey, you know what? I have a reason to use. And they're, they're, they put that blame, they project that anger out onto somebody else and say, it's your fault. Um, and that's why I have to to use. So a lot of it has to do with, again, the drug having certain effects on your brain that can make you um, act physiologically um, a different way. But then there's also that psychological component that the mind has to have to often rationalize and justify why we have to use. And that often incorporates a lot of defensivity towards um, the substance use. Okay, that makes sense. So I want to talk about a term that I think most people have heard, which is being an enabler. Um, but what does that really mean? What does it mean to enable somebody? You know, I use, we use that term all the time. And I don't think I've really like defined it like that, but an enabler, basically somebody or a behavior, an action, a dialogue that negatively reinforces somebody's substance use or addictive behaviors. And so it, it's like an inadvertent action uh, that unfortunately may be intended to reduce someone's substance use, but unfortunately enhances their usage. A an example could be if I am the parent of a teenager who I know is using alcohol 
And I know every time this teenager is going out, he might get into fights, might get into trouble, might try and take the car. We're afraid he might get into an accident or get some legal consequences. So I kind of offer the teenager, look, let me buy you a six pack, but stay home and drink. So, you know, you can use at home. So you're basically trying to take away the negative consequence of getting into a fight or the legal action, but you're actually giving that person what you're actually trying to have them not do in the first place, which is use alcohol. And that is enabling them to actually consume, but in your house. So you're trying to avoid one consequence, but unfortunately uh, reinforcing the behavior that you're trying to stop in the first place that's causing those consequences. Those are enabling type behaviors. Okay. And I think a big issue, too, is also people, you know, giving money to somebody. Um, You know, say somebody is spending all of the money that they get in and they're spending that on drugs. And now they don't, you know, they tell their family, I don't have money for food, you know, and their family is giving them more money. It's like, how, how can that be detrimental? Because the family member might hear that and be like, well, I need to help them. You know, I need to support them. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you love somebody, you succumb to guilt and responsibility that you may have towards this. And this often takes, um, you know, it, this is a very big dynamic that's involved. And you just mentioned it, you know, you're, you're giving somebody money to hopefully they can care for themselves. But when somebody is addicted, they're not necessarily looking at the best priority or the best ways to take care of oneself. And their mind is focused on using a drug or alcohol. And so, yeah, unfortunately, even though the intention is there to hopefully maybe pay for their rent or pay for their food, um, when somebody unfortunately is suffering with substance use disorders, they're not thinking straight. So they're going to use that money in in the wrong way. They're going to go and pursue more drugs or alcohol. And so detrimentally, obviously, you know, when you're using in those negative ways, um, those negative ways and the consequences will continue. So, um, it's, 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 it's a difficult thing to do because we, we feel the need to help, but uh, having it without certain checks and balances can unfortunately lead to just further perpetuating the, the, the substance use disorder. I, I was going to add a lot, of, a lot of other behaviors that seem well-intentioned, like, you know, defending, you know, someone who's using or, you know, constantly you know, helping them avoid consequences for their actions can all, can often have the opposite of the intended effect. Um, <clears throat> and, and can also lead, it can, it can also enable drug use, uh, alcohol use a lot as well. Yeah, you see that a lot. You know, you, you know we, we kind of explained it in a way that, you know, we can talk bad about our family, but we can't have anybody else do it. And that, that is unfortunately because we've, we've become in a way codependent to these negative, you know, behaviors. And, you know, when I use that term, I'm talking about, you know, us having this unfortunate dynamic where we are also somehow psychologically, behaviorally involved with the substance use and the individual who's abusing the substance. But we are trying to correct that course. But when somebody from externally tries to point that out, we will often defend that in an attempt to, you know, deny that the problem actually exists. So we also, as family members and loved ones, um, have defense mechanisms. And we want to, you know, basically, um, you know, that denial is almost a protection. Uh, 
that you know we we want to minimize the occurrence but unfortunately if that's done in front of that other person yes it's again it's another negative reinforcement um if that person who we're trying to have stop use um is hearing this message um it's definitely a, a, a mixed one for that mm-hmm so in what ways can somebody offer support, but without enabling them? You know, I think sometimes family members go to these extremes and um, it's hard, you know, and it is, there's no rule books here. I think a lot of people tend to say, oh, we try to, you know, put a script together of this is how you can or cannot behave. You know, although, yes, addiction is a, a, a brain disease there's such a huge psychological and behavioral component to it that it takes also psychological behavioral reactions and actions to um, assist those individuals who suffer. So um, first of all, I think recognizing addiction as it is not necessarily a behavioral disorder or uh, a a problem with weakness and um, not just thinking you can talk one, talk them out of it um, and understanding that it is a brain disease. And so one is like a family member should try and intervene and interact when you think that they're in their clean, clearest state. That's not often easy if somebody's using all the time, but maybe while they're fully intoxicated might not be the time to try and rationalize with them. And I think that often is something that um, doesn't work. And, and also, you know, going from fully enabling them to just mitigate, you know, the the buzzing in the air because of all the arguing and the fighting and uh, the complaints and the blame sometimes people will give in and just give in to shut that person up but at the same time giving and giving and then turning in i'm not giving you anything um so there's an extreme of fully enabling or fully shutting somebody out and i don't think those two polar um you know behaviors work and, and I think it's hard because, you know, people end up trying to be so good that they feel like, you know, I got to do this tough love. So to answer your question, you, you, you got to kind of catch them at the right time and the right place in a graded way um, that can help. And it could be as, as you know, simple as starting to not enable as much um, opposed to totally abandoning that human being. Um, it also could be um, supporting that person and empathizing with them and understanding what, you know, that they're going through instead of like maybe shaming them and guilting them, but understanding that they're going through a difficult process. I think one of the things that anybody wants to, you know, under, know is that the other person is trying to be understanding and open-minded and is trying to put themselves in their shoes. So you want to develop that um, opposed to that animosity and that, um, you know, those negative feelings. And then also, if we are going to the extreme, there are many states that have, you know, um, involuntary commitments. So having the law uh, assist them, because if somebody's using to the point where it's such significant detriment, and I'm not going to spell this out specifically, because each state has its own laws regarding involuntary placement for people with substance use. But these are things that somebody can do to intervene when people are using to the extreme where, you know, it's it's going to kill them and or hurt somebody else. 
and um and then along the way in the middle you can get somebody like an interventionist to help um these are professionals these are often people in long-term recovery themselves who have um trained to come and speak with the individual to help so there's a spectrum so i guess what i'm advising is not to go from one end to the other but try and meet the patient where they're at I just wanted to kind of, you know, add a little point to that. Um, you mentioned like different states have like involuntary, you know, commitments for drug and alcohol use. And I know a lot of that, that is often, you know, kind of controversial for a number of reasons. And a lot of people don't like to take that step. Um, but uh, there are very few people who want to go to rehab. The vast majority of people who do, you know, go to rehab, for example, do so because they were given an ultimatum by their job or their family um, or, or the law um, that they had to go. Um, and, you know, why, why, the reason inherently why you go for treatment does obviously matter, but at the end of the day, you know, if, if someone's substance abuse is putting their own life or other people's lives at risk, that is a step that a lot of families kind of do have to seriously consider. Yeah, and, and so let me kind of clarify what I, you know, the Haley's previous question. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm, I, when I was talking about interventions or, or when we're talking about steps um, about enabling, um, I was kind of giving that scope. But absolutely, you know, if the person through whatever means is able to get into treatment, which we ultimately hopefully will want, just like for any medical condition, we want to get them professional help. Um, they have to have, um, they have to be willing to go. That was the part if they are not, you know, and if those options exist. But yeah, if somebody can get for whatever reason, if it's mandated, if there's something being held over their head, if they're in terms of, you know, a job loss or family will, will, you know, not speak with them. That is unfortunately the motivating factor for people to get into treatment. It's, it's, it is ironic, but at least those things um, give that person an opportunity to get some clarity and break that cycle. And so for many people that are resistant to getting that help, yeah, you know, we talk about people having to hit rock bottom where they have nowhere to go or nobody to support them, no means to eat or buy drugs. Um, they often will seek out treatment, but even those which might be seemingly negative, those are positives because the minute you get into treatment, your brain is starting to heal the minute drugs or alcohol are removed. You know, I don't think it's ever too late. Obviously, you know, if somebody's got a terminal condition or due to their substances has unfortunately damage their body so much but you know what our, our bodies and our mind are, are very resilient and i'm not giving this as hope for people to continue using to the extreme where until hey you know dr bot said you know our bodies are resilient so because people who unfortunately are addicted will use anything to continue to to use um but the point is yes getting into treatment for whatever reason um is going to help these individuals with that moment of clarity, but that should be um, the the earliest and a uh, goal, um, and hopefully in a voluntary manner, without having to take law uh, or get a legal um, mandate to have them go. For kind of like my last question, 
um, say someone does go and they complete treatment, you know, and they're early in their recovery, how, as a family member or a close friend, how do you offer support? You know, hopefully if they've been in treatment, the, the treatment center or the program that they're going to, and we're calling, when I'm saying treatment, you know, a lot of times it could be outpatient treatment or inpatient treatment. Um, hopefully the, the, the treatment component has involved the family in the first place and educated them on specific things such as, you know, um, supporting that person in terms of not having drugs or alcohol themselves in, in front of them, which is often a difficult time, uh, a difficult thing for um, loved ones to do. And I've, I've been to so many family meetings where, you know, uh, the patient suffers from alcohol, drug use, and yet the family's still smoking or um, like marijuana, and they might think it's benign or um, drinking in front of them. And they need to understand that they need to try and create a recovery environment for that loved one. So one of the things to point out is that, look, um, please don't put these negative triggers in front of in front of them. And that's often hard. Um, number two is, you know, not shaming and guilting these people if, if they do end up lapsing a little bit or maybe start to don't, don't make it look like it's a tremendous step back. You know, hopefully we're seeing that, you know, this this disease um, does have periods where people will relapse, but that doesn't mean that the family should look at it um, as a, a loss or a weakness in any way. And the patient should also recognize that doesn't mean I need to have a full blown um, run because, um, you know, things can things happen in anything. You know, just like if somebody who suffers from, you know, diabetes um, has to watch their diet, sometimes they're not going to eat what's instructed by the physician. So um, things can happen with um, addiction similarly. And but I think we look at it in such a negative way. Oh, my God, he relapsed. Well, yeah, it happens. But let's get them back on track. Um, another thing is getting them in support groups. I'm not advocating for one specific philosophy, um, but support groups and getting them around sober people who are living a good recovery, uh, a living life in recovery and um, are not using um, really helps people feel connected. You know, people who suffer from any disease like addiction or anything else, they want to feel like people understand them and who better to understand them than people who are progressing in life with an illness um, in a successful way. So encouraging people to attend support groups. Um, also, if there's any medication or other um, me medical treatment that's been prescribed, uh, ensuring these people are, are taking them, encouraging them to do so. Because oftentimes if there's, um, you know, people are using for, you know, treating their own medical conditions or psychiatric conditions um, by not taking those meds or maintaining them, you're just increasing your chance to uh, use drugs and alcohol, maybe to self-medicate. So these are important factors. So, you know, I, I use an acronym called TEAM, T-E-A-M, that, you know, the family and the patient need to ensure that they're getting the right after their discharge or after they complete treatment, getting the right therapies that were advised, either individual family uh, behavioral therapies, um, encouraging the proper environment, drug-free, um, pro-recovery, uh, um, proper support groups, and that leads to A, like, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, those, you know, peer support groups and M, 
um, the last letter in team medications, you know, and if you think of that global holistic concept and working at it together without shaming or guilting an individual, um, you're at least on the path for um, enhanced success. Absolutely. And I think that that's a lot of, you know, advice that people can really take hold of and practice, you know, especially during the holiday season when families are gathered, you know, there's often holiday parties going on, you know, people are drinking, you know, just be aware of what your loved one is going through right now. You know, you, you mentioned that I think that's, you know, it's a very important point right now. The, the holidays are a huge time where families are setting themselves up for certain expectations. We expect a lot from those who are suffering with addiction and who those aren't. You know, it's this idealized time where society reflects upon is it has to be somewhat perfect. There's a lot of stress involved. There's a lot of people who haven't seen each other for a while. There could be resentments that um, may be held and um, you mix that with drugs or alcohol often. Um, that's a recipe for disaster. So yes, this is the most important time that you know people should be looking out for because yes it's a time to rejoice and celebrate but at the same time um people who suffer with substance use disorders um often will use this or um it's a very vulnerable time for them um, because of all those factors that we do and he's just celebrating people often say hey i gotta i'll have a drink today i'll have a toast at family there how often do we get together and you know that just opens up um a really uh, difficult situation. It's bad enough with all those tensions that are there, even though it's a period where we should be rejoicing and having a good time and celebrating. But when you mix substances that, um, you know, disinhibit you or release you or create artificial emotions, that just um, unfortunately complicates the whole situation. So yes, it's a very sensitive time and everybody needs to look out. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, you know, there are a lot of great, you know, information and resources online. You know, if you're not sure how to interact with a family member who is in recovery, you, know, you can look that up and, you know, get some advice before you head into the season. We've got a lot of resources for families on addictioncenter.com. So you can check those out. They're under the information tab. Um, we also have our other podcast episodes up on the site. So make sure to check those out too. Uh, Jeff and Dr. Bot. Thank you again for joining me today, um, and thank you to those who are listening to another episode of Straight Talk with the Doc.